today on Ag News Daily. If he's able to make these top soybean yields in the heat and environment he's in, what is he doing that I can replicate on my farm to try to increase my yields? So, you know, it, that's what I learned over over the past few years for them is, you know, they work as a team and uh, usually what works on their farm will work on yours in some form or fashion. Hey listeners, here we are, November 9th, 2023. Going to jump on to some news and headlines. Not a lot of weather to focus on, Delaney, just still a lot of wind. We're seeing sustained winds from 15 to 25 miles per hour through most of the Midwest. Nebraska could see gusts up to 40 miles per hour, Iowa up to 35 miles per hour. Of course, we have relatively low humidity. Uh, as far as that goes. So, of course, if there is a fire, it's going to expand rapidly. In central Oklahoma, we've got a chance of thunderstorms. There's no other severe weather in the outlook for most of our listening area. Yeah, absolutely. And we've started to see some folks getting close to wrapping up harvest. Louisiana is the first state to officially be done, according to the latest estimates here from USDA. So, Louisiana, of course, is dealing with some really extreme drought standards. Most of the state is covered in E4 drought conditions. So I know that's pretty common across a lot of different states, but Louisiana raced to the finish line here and is officially the first state done. But I also want to make a quick note. If anyone hears any loud background noises, I am sitting in the Denver airport. And for those of you that travel through here, you know, it's a very hectic, busy airport. So might be a little bit of background noise. So I'm going to mute myself when I'm not talking. Got it. That's great. I want to know if any of our listeners from Louisiana still have beans in the field to test the true validity of that 100% done. We saw beef and pork shipments decline in September. The exports both fall, fell on a monthly and annual basis. Shipments of beef overseas to buyers declined to 20, 231.5 million pounds during that month, down from 259.5 in August and 279.3 in September of 2022. So a significant drop there. South Korea led the purchases with nearly 25%, followed by Japan and China. All three countries imported less than they did a year ago. When you talk pork, Delaney, pork exports also declined, falling to 512 million pounds in September. USDA stated that that's down from 526.7 in the month before and 516.1 million during the same month the previous year. So only down a little bit year over year for pork. Mexico was the largest importer by far with uh, nearly half, almost half of that, followed by Japan in a distant second place. And then Canada was in third being the largest buyer there. Imports by Mexico and Japan both declined month over month. But Canadian bacon purchases rose in September. Okay, maybe it didn't say Canadian bacon, but that's the only thing I could think of there, Delaney. <laughs> Thank you. I was wondering if it said Canadian bacon. I thought that would be a unique thing for that report to share. But nonetheless, Tanner, uh, let's keep on the exports track here because China has made some really large purchases of exports here from the United States as of recently. Some of these imports are noted in USDA's report as going to quote-unquote unknown destinations. But the assumption there is it's generally headed to China. We got a few really big shipments this week, but all in all, we have sent 40 cargo ships to various locations, the majority of those headed to China. And that's well above the typical average we see for this time of year when we're typically around 25 to 30 cargos per week. 
course, we'll get into WASD report estimates here in just a little bit, but China is stacking up fears here. A little concerned that not only will we see maybe a smaller crop here in the United States as far as soybeans go, but of course, their eyes are also on South America as they're having some really harsh conditions here for their early growing season. Brazil is certainly dealing with some adverse weather as planting and early growing conditions have been definitely less than ideal. And those issues are expected to continue here over the next seven to 10 days. As a whole, when you think about the state of Mato Grosso and Mato Grosso do Sul, Goiás, they have certainly seen hot and dry conditions, but then you head into other parts of the state in contrast to the Southern parts of Brazil, they've seen super wet conditions. So neither super ideal for planting and China is nervously watching the balance sheet here in the United States as well as South America. And it's uh, kind of the underlying assumption, Tanner, is that China is going to start stockpiling those crops and specifically soybeans again because they're expecting tightening balancing sheets for the U.S. and South America, which of course will probably push prices potentially higher from here. Yeah, and it was an interesting Market Monday conversation this week talking about what it's going to be like to transport grain throughout the world because of the low water levels inland for the United States and the Panama Canal. So I can see China getting nervous, which could be a run-up. However, projections are stating that the U.S. economy and inflation is going to slow in 2024, which may cause crop prices again to drop. We'd look for a second year above average in a row, but interest rates and inflation are gonna slow the economy, not just in the ag sector, but overall the projected ag department, the projection that the agriculture department put out on Tuesday for the outline of the farm sector and the conditions coming up next year said that farm gate prices for three major field crops, corn, soybeans, and wheat would fall for the second year in a row, but still remain above pre-pandemic levels. While they're expecting the prices for cattle and hogs to go up, Americans would consume on average 224 pounds of meat in 2024. That's down only 1.8 pounds over the year 2023. Chiefly, they expect this to be due to the tighter supply and the higher prices of beef as beef cow numbers continue to fall for the fifth year in a row. There are fewer animals to be slaughtered, but with lower seasonal average prices expected, farmers could reduce their planting acres by maybe 5 million. So it doesn't sound like a lot, Delaney, but when you keep an eye on the balance sheet, that's going to be important because soybean plantings could increase and cover up some of that shortfall. So we could see a decrease according to this projection in corn and an increase in soybeans. Commodity prices have been comparatively high since 2020. Of course, we will continue to watch what China does on the farm exports, and we'll see how the Russian invasion of Ukraine continues to handle because that might be supporting our prices as well. The USDA is projecting season average prices next year for 450 for corn, 1130 for soybeans, and 630 for wheat. So as we sit there and look where we are currently, Delaney, that'll be an interesting story to see how it unfolds. It will. And, you know, I was running some numbers the other day ahead of a speech here that I was giving to a group of farmers and ranchers. And farm profitability is really going to tighten up here. I was looking at USDA's kind of average balance sheet numbers. And now take it with a grain of salt because USDA does add into their break-even cost of production 
labor, which includes what you should be paying yourself as well as maybe potential um, farm hands. And I know a lot of farmers don't necessarily take that into the account of their costs of production, but I was crunching some numbers, Tanner, and those numbers you mentioned there that USDA is forecasting for prices certainly don't cover the break-even cost of what farmers are going to need to make here to cover their costs in 2024. So certainly going to be a year to tighten the belt. Yeah, it uh, certainly will be. And I think it's going to cause a lot of farmers to look really close at their crop rotation this winter. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, Tanner, to keep things moving here, the USDA announced on Wednesday some new measures that they are going to put in place to increase production and also competition within the poultry sector. After numerous years of poultry producers feeling like they were not able to have transparency about how their poultry prices were getting paid out, the USDA on Wednesday announced the first in a series of new requirements that are a result of President Biden's executive order in 2021 to increase competition in the country's economy. These new regulations will require large live poultry dealers, that's an awful, to disclose the farmer's earnings of their contracted growers. And these dealers must also describe in depth how they handle flock losses associated with disease and natural disasters, shortages of food and farmer complaints about food quality. These new regulations will also require those dealers to guarantee a minimum number of flock placements with farmers per year and to specify the sizes of those flocks. So this should be a step forward in creating a fair and efficient marketplace, specifically for the poultry growers who have long since felt that they have not had measures put in place for their industry theater. So exciting news there potentially for poultry producers to come. I'm glad you took that article because I saw it and skimmed it going uh, a little bit confused myself. So thanks for pushing through that. My last piece for today is the most common crop growers, soy and corn, are seeing their practices shift, mainly because of weather. Most common changes were the use of no-till and shifting to a mix of crops that increases drought-resistant varieties. The Ag Economy Barometer is the one putting out these results. A minority of corn and soybean growers, one in four, said they altered their operations directly because of the weather patterns. The Purdue University poll said, as it was released on Tuesday, the most common changes were to switch to no-till and shifting those varieties chosen. Dry weather this past spring and summer stimulated discussions amongst producers that took the survey, looking to see how they will change their practices in the near future. Nearly one out of four have indicated that they will change something this fall due to their weather pattern shifts. The thoughts of tilling the soil, potentially allowing moisture to escape, no-till provides the opportunity for that moisture to remain in the ground. The barometer stated that the gauge of farmer confidence did rise though, slightly to a reading of 110, but that is still below the six month rolling average of 116. Farmers are less concerned about the risk of lower prices and felt that they are more concerned about demand. Obviously we know Delaney that demand will drive those prices higher. So smart farmers there and their responses. Their operators uh, continue to put together the top 7.4% of the U.S. farms in this survey to hopefully keep these results accurate going forward. But we'll see if any of our listeners are planning on switching tillage practices in this between season period that we have. That's the last piece of news I have for today. Well, great. I think the final piece of news then as we head into markets is chatting about today's WASDI report. Now, Tanner, 
this is the report that a lot of analysts were expecting to see some adjustments made to yield, and they certainly saw that transpire. However, uh, yields were coming in a little higher than what the average trade expectation was, and I think that's the big headline today as we look at today's report. Corn yield came in at a 174.9. Average trade guess was about a 173. So almost two bushels higher there than what the average trade was expecting. As far as soybean yield went, that came in just slightly higher than the average, 49.9. Average trade was expecting a 49.6. Here's a couple of other important headlines our listeners might be interested to learn. Of course, with higher yields come higher production numbers. No surprise there. But we also saw U.S. ending stocks come in above expectations for corn, soybeans, and wheat. Corn exports, exports, however, were increased uh, in today's report. Soybeans and wheat, however, were left unchanged. Therefore, when we think about South America, USDA did, in fact, increase Brazil's 22-23 harvest of soybeans, noting that exports there that were unchanged in the United States are going to be coming from South America. And 23-24, soy and corn were both unchanged for Brazil. No change to Argentina's crop, corn or soy, but their wheat output was cut just about one and a half million metric tons. So not a huge shock to the system there, aside from those numbers for yield expectations now. And following the release of the report today, that certainly has pushed markets lower. December corn is currently seven and three quarter cents lower at 468 and a quarter. New crop soybeans down 11 and three quarter cents at 1281. As we take a look at the wheat complex today, the December winter wheat contract, excuse me, December Chicago wheat contract is down 15 and a half cents at 577. Hard red December winter wheat is down nine cents at 646. And December spring wheat down seven and a quarter at 728 and a quarter. Livestock standards today are Seemingly affected by a lot going on. Lower export numbers, like you shared there. Uh, probably some other market factors I haven't had time to take a look at today, but nonetheless, December live cattle are down the limit. $1.7520 is currently where they're trading. January feeder cattle also down the limit, extended limit today, actually, at $6 lower. Not currently locked limit lower, but trading lower nonetheless at 226.82 and December lead hogs. So the only market here trading higher on the board, 32 and a half cents in December contract here at the midday at 71.82 and a half. And for today's conversation, super excited to turn things over and begin. We are headed to Tennessee, West Tennessee, this morning. We are happy to have a conversation with John Burrell. He's a farmer down there and works with and a part of the Extreme Ag team. Welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thank you. Let's jump right into it here, and why don't we get you introduced to our listeners? What are you doing down there in West Tennessee? What's your farm look like? Uh, we just finished up uh, harvesting soybeans yesterday, so we transitioned today and starting to uh, haul grain out to the elevators. Awesome. So you guys farm what kind of crops down there? Uh, we farm uh, wheat, corn, and soybeans. Awesome. So, John, tell us what kind of growing season you've had this year. This year we had a uh, we actually had a really good growing season. Uh, we were able to get the crops planted on time, and uh, 
really just had a little bit of dry period there in June, uh, but around 4th of July, really started catching some uh, much needed rain and the rains continued to about middle of August. And uh, I think we've had one rain since August 15th as of today. So it's been really dry. <clears throat> um, we just finished up planting our wheat crop and to be determined if it'll come up. I, I don't think I've ever seen it as dry as it is right now, really, for this time of year for us. Well, that doesn't sound like uh, a very positive outlook, unfortunately. I mean, hopefully things can kick into gear. It's always fun when we get to see the updates coming from the Extreme Ag team that's spread across the U.S. Tell us a little bit about how you got associated with the team. Uh, just <clears throat> meeting a lot of the guys at uh, grower meetings or at uh, commodity class at different places. Just got to meet and got to meet several of them over the years and uh, realized uh, I like their approach to how they network and work with other farmers <clears throat> and kind of tell their secrets. But at the end of the day, they're really just saying what works on their farm. So, you know, I farm uh, about three hours north of Chad Henderson. So. You know, I was like, well, if it's working where he is, it ought to work where I'm at. Or Matt Miles, he's a little bit farther south, but if he's able to make these type of soybean yields in the heat and environment he's in, what is he doing that I can replicate on my farm to try to increase my yields? So, you know, that's what I learned over over the past few years with them is, you know, they work as a team and uh, usually what works on their farm will work on yours in some form or fashion. Yeah. So John, for those of our listeners who aren't familiar with the extreme ag, ag team, tell us a little bit more about what it is. Is it a system? Is it just a network of fellow farmers? It's a, it's a group of farmers that got together and, you know, created this extreme ag group. And when they did that, you know, they, that you, you can pay $750 a year and you get to listen to all their podcasts or see all the videos. And then last year they asked me to be an affiliate with them. And basically all I did was start showing just like they were, but started showing what I was doing on my farm because I may apply nitrogen different than somebody else does. And what's working on my farm, you know, could work and speed somebody else up on their farm or, you know, planter setups. That's a big thing is they all talk about their planter setups or what equipment works, what equipment doesn't work, you know, and then you get into all the additives that, you know, different ones do in season to try to push their crops to that next level, you know, they all have their own recipe and I just try to showcase what I'm doing on my farm in season and, you know, just kind of network and say what works and what doesn't work, do all the trials, share all the data on the trials. And, you know, this really makes it to where you can do a large scale trial across the U S and see which products are really getting that ROI that we need. Yeah, that is kind of neat when you look at how open and willing to share the entire group is, what are some pieces that you've picked out of the working with that team and implemented on your farm? Um, mainly the planter setups, you know, we were, I had planters that we had three planters set up and we were doing inferring two by two and kind of got to watching some of the videos they were putting out. And a lot of them weren't putting out two by two, like I was, they were doing it a different way. And so I've changed this coming season. I'm going to change my two by two program to a simpler way. And it's easier to pull and stuff like that. Basically off of what I was watching different ones do in the program. So you, you see that. And then the combine uh, techniques that some of them have, as far as how they're getting more production out of a combine, that's been a big takeaway for me too. So I really changed up <clears throat> our combines, added Estes concaves, 
which most of them are running and it really was a game changer for us as far as the extra productivity we get and then the cleanliness of the samples it really does change how they work so you, you get it from a farming practice to machinery that we're running you know and it just it really just shows you to look outside the box yeah i love that i think the extreme ag guys are pretty famous for thinking outside of the box so as you think about 2024 have they got anything in your pipeline that's that's changed your perspective or that you're planning on doing a little differently next year yeah, like I said, I'm going to change up my planters a little bit off of what I've seen. Um, where I'm located at, we don't strip till. I'm still interested in that. Um, you know, Chad's doing it just south of me. Uh, several other ones are doing strip till for sure. And, you know, it really does look like the future of being able to ban your fertilizer, reduce those nutrients, you know, put those nutrients in the zone, so to say. And, you know, that's one thing I'm still trying to figure out how to make it work and have a good fit for that in my operation. But, Overall, this coming year, you know, some of the takeaways is probably the products we're going to be using in season uh, when we start getting all the trial data in this year. Because I did the trial data, but, you know, there's five or six other ones in the group that did the trial data. We'll be able to see really, you know, what was working best and make sure it's just not working here this year and doesn't work here. You know, if you can work in four or five locations and get the same results, that's what I'm looking for. You know, I hadn't thought about it that way. To, to be able to test a product across different regions, and have the data that you know is going to be tested the same way that you did. If our listeners wanted access to information like that, is that something that that is shared by Extreme Ag, or is there a membership to join? Uh, there is a membership to join, and <clears throat> once you do that, I mean, like I said, it's $750 to join, and once you become a member, you can actually ask questions. You can send in questions, and they actually send those by text to us for us to answer, like maybe what PGRs we're using or what planter setups did we have, or if we tried this product, did it work or did it not? And we all try to respond on what we think, you know, we know the answer to. So one question might get four or five responses from all different parts of the country. And, you know, we do all these trials and stuff like that. And what I like about them is, is they're standard. So like we're all doing the same trial replicated the same way, but just in different States across the country. So it's not like I get the, the product in and I got to figure out how I'm going to use it or how I'm going to place it. No, it's, it's more of a standardized thing. So that really lets us get some really good data and um, see which products are going to work. And once again, it's all about that ROI, you know, what return we can get for that investment. Awesome, John. Well, we certainly appreciate you joining us today to walk through your experience with Extreme Ag and your growing season. Uh, but if any of our listeners want to follow along with you, are you on social media or how's the best way to connect with you? Yeah, I'm somewhat on social media. I, I, I do have Facebook and different things like that. But I mean, once again, it, they can, uh, once they join, I mean, they can reach out and ask questions that way. And a lot of times um, we actually get their phone number and call them and tell them what we're doing and, and be more one-on-one. So um, there is other ways to, to get answers out of us or see what we're doing. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for joining us today. All right. Well, thank you. Well, there we go, Delaney, another good conversation, wrapping up a Thursday episode. we got one more this week, our fun Friday shows. Listeners, we always love guest suggestions that come from you. Hit us up on social media and let us know who you want us to talk to. Right, Delaney? Absolutely, We've got a great week already planned for next week, though. One more episode tomorrow, and then we'll see everybody next week. But I suppose, you know, we got to let the people go. Let's let them go. 